Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that your boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if uh, some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you but for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead and to you, ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower, speaking of God, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you. Because of the surpassing grace of God upon us, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Well, just last week we were talking about this collection, which is the subject of this chapter. And actually the subject not only of chapter 9, but chapter 8. It really begins there. But the thrust of what Paul has to say here in the first five verses is about doing the right thing, sticking through, uh, sticking with the decision that you made to do the right thing, which was to contribute and provide for this gift. And remember, the gift was going to be taken to Jerusalem and given to Jewish Christians um, in the much larger family of God, but to Jewish Christians, these these. Gentile Christians raised in a Roman Greek city, Corinth, uh, come to Christ, and they were going to contribute to the Jewish Christians and express to them their love in Christ. And so in the first five verses, Paul wants to kind of cause them to stick with what they've chosen to do. I'm not sure exactly what may have changed or why they waffled at all. 
Uh, but he has talked about the Macedonians to them because they've jumped in on this of free will. They're excited about it. They didn't have to have their arm twisted. They didn't have to be uh, compelled in any way. And uh, as we saw even briefly last week, uh, Paul in this collection wants to communicate to the needs of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, not only their physical needs, but to communicate their love to them and help them to realize that we are one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. And this was a part of what Paul was trying to express through a very practical gift. And he wants to compel them, and so in verses 6 through 12, he emphasizes very profoundly that God is generous. Do the right thing, which in this case is stick with that generous heart of yours, that decision out of generosity and goodwill, you chose to give more than perhaps even you felt you could give because God outgives you. He is more generous than even you. And then in verses 13, 14, and 15, he says, we do this out of deep obligation even duty, because God has given us the greatest gift, and that gift is Jesus Christ. And so he speaks to them about generous faith as an adventure in God's faithfulness. Generous faith as an adventure in God's faithfulness, because it becomes an adventure when we're challenged to follow through on things that may not come naturally, or things that we have second doubts about. And that's why Paul in verses 1 through 5 says, faith does the right thing. That's my wording, but I thought we could relate to that. Faith does the right thing. Of course, this is faith that is invested in God through Jesus Christ. This is the God who sent his one and only Son, who has expressed ultimate grace and generosity. And he wanted the Corinthians to do what they determined to do. He wants them to be faithful. He wants them to do the right thing. And I think this is instructive for us too. I don't know why it appears that they're having trouble following through. Months have passed. Now Paul's trying to make arrangements. He even uses in chapter 8 the Macedonian churches to encourage them. And one of the things that he insists upon in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, is that the Macedonians first gave themselves to God and then gave to Paul for the gift for, for the Christians in Jerusalem. And that's always got to be the way it goes. You know, the right heart, the right action, uh, the doing of a little more, the um, setting of your own interests and desires aside always begins with God. I mean, he's the only one, 
and I guess I'm speaking autobiographically now, he's, he's the one that gets to be Lord in my life. He's won that right. And he gets to tell me what to do. And for the genuine things that flow out of that in my life, it's got to begin with him. Sometimes we begin in other places. We begin with the merit of the person that God may be compelling us to be kind or generous or sensitive to. And we begin to think in terms of merit or worth or do they deserve it. And we compare ourselves to them. But I find that when I always give myself to God, that changes the game for me in a way that is quite profound. And I think that's what Paul is doing with the Corinthians here. You know, when it's right, we stick with it. That's what we call faithfulness. God is always faithful. We call God faithful because he's not right just once or on occasion, but time after time after time after time. And he's won our hearts because of his faithfulness, and so we know that that which is of love and that which is of goodness and that which is of kindness, those are the things that he stands for, and that is certified in Jesus Christ. And we make decisions out of that, hopefully. That's why we call ourselves Christians, little Christs. That's what the word Christian means. We make decisions out of a right heart, a heart that is forged and influenced by Jesus Christ. The things that he stands for, the things that he won in our hearts on the cross when he died for us, and with all the other things we realize about him. But sometimes doing the right thing is clear to us. It's clear from Scripture. It's clear even in our heart. We make the decision, but then we begin to waffle, and sometimes feelings enter in, sometimes the opinions of others. Maybe time passes and we start to second guess. And that's natural enough. We're human. When Jesus said, love your enemies, I mean, what can you in your human experience draw upon to compel your feelings to love your enemy? Nothing. Your feelings are going to battle you, your experience. Feelings come from what we think. And a lot of our thinking is shaped by our past and our experiences. And when Jesus asks us to do something outlandish, I mean an adventure, like love our enemies, we get second thoughts. We get questions. We get doubts. Our experience and our feelings do not carry us heartily into loving our enemies. Sometimes we have trouble loving other drivers. They aren't even our enemies. Faith is a challenge. Faith involves risks. You have to submit your feelings, even if you know it's the right thing. Jesus said do it. And even though you know that's right, to actually do it, you have to have a generous faith in his faithfulness. 
it was a life changer for me, and it grew out of some reading out of the Bible. First, it was Joseph. You know, Joseph, the youngest of 12, who was kidnapped by his brothers and sold into slavery. He found himself in Egypt, and with hard work and lots of effort, he rose up in the house that he was a slave, and his master, Potiphar, gave him increasing responsibility until he was the head of the house. He oversaw the affairs and management of the industry of that house. And Potiphar had a younger wife, and Joseph was a handsome guy, and when Potiphar was away on travel, she made a pass at Joseph. She even grabbed him. And to get away, Joseph escaped without his cloak. In fact, Joseph said, and this is in Genesis 39, verse 9, how can I do this to Potiphar and sin against God? So he, of generous faith, trusted in the faithfulness of God and did the right thing. Not the thing that even maybe his feelings were telling him what to do. And he obeyed God even at the expense of having to wrest himself from Potiphar's wife's clutches. And when he came home, his wife told him lies about Joseph, and Joseph ended up in prison because he was just a slave. And I thought to myself, that doesn't seem right. If I obey God, if I put it on the line, if I deny my feelings, my, my impulses, if I do all that for God, I want a heavenly chorus to acknowledge it. I want people to rise up and call me righteous. I don't want to get accused of things I didn't do and find myself in jail falsely. How about Jonah? The same principle was impressed upon me in Jonah. The Ninevites were a ruthless ruling people, and they trampled Jonah and his people, the Israelites. And God told Jonah to go to the Ninevites and proclaim him to them. And Jonah didn't even want to give them a chance to repent. He didn't think they deserved it. And so you know the story. He was on a ship fleeing from the Ninevites and fleeing from God. When the sea came up and those on the ship became suspicious, they thought there's, there's a Jeremiah on this ship. You know what I mean? There's, a, there's somebody that's brought us bad luck. Jonah comes forward, they throw him overboard, God saves him with a large fish, and while he's in there stewing, he repents, and when the whale spits him up on the shore, he goes in and he does what God asked him to do, and it didn't turn out the way he wanted it. They repented. 
So Jonah goes off outside the city, up on a hill, and whines and fusses and complains to the Lord, and the Lord finally speaks to him about the nature of his own heart and how Jonah needs to trust him more and see things his way. In both of these stories, I began to see something that was very important to me in my Christian walk, and that is I needed to learn to love the results of obedience. I needed to learn to love the results of obedience. In other words, it wasn't on the consequences that I found my motivation and energy to do what was right. It was on the intentions and what God was calling me to do. Shelley and I, in our relationship with family and friends and others, there have been many occasions where we make decisions to help or encourage, or, and it doesn't, it doesn't quite go the way you want. Like, for example, you might give someone uh, an amount of money, but when they don't say thank you, all of a sudden you become aware that you expected them to say thank you. And what we've learned to do is that we put our emphasis on the intention and not on the outcome. We made the right decision. By the way, if you're just giving money away without thinking about it and whether it's right, then come see me. But usually when you give money to people, you've given it great thought and you decide to do it because it's the right thing to do. And it shouldn't matter whether they give you thanks or not. Now, that's, that's their problem, and you need to see that too. They've got a problem when they don't express thanks. But the point is, is that we put our emphasis on the right heart and the intentions. When Shelley and I got married, we went to the coast and enjoyed our first night together. It's called the honeymoon. And in the morning, I got up early because I was still in school and had some studying to do. And when I got up in the morning, I didn't feel at all like I felt the night before. In fact, I was wrestling with my feelings. I didn't feel fe feelings that I thought I should feel. And I was really quite shaken by that. And so I began to pray because I thought maybe I've made the wrong decision. But that decision was made on the basis of a great deal of prayer, a great deal of counsel, a great deal of consideration of who she is and what she was committing. It was the right decision, but I wasn't feeling it in the morning. I didn't feel all of that, you know, um, infatuation. Sometimes our experiences, when we use those or we are drawing upon them in the face of something new, especially when it's an act of faith and an act of following God and serving Him. Those feelings don't complement what you're doing. Sometimes faith feels wrong. Sometimes it feels irresponsible. Not because it is irresponsible, but sometimes we're so responsible that when things don't go the way we think it should go, our faith doesn't support, or acting in faith doesn't support what we think is the responsible thing. When I was um, 
Some years ago, I was asked to speak to a group of college students at a retreat, and the topic was ethics, the subject of ethics. I said, couldn't you pare it down? Ethics is the study of doing what's right, if you will. And I went and I began, I mean, months in advance to study and prepare. And I wanted to be encyclopedic, at least in my understanding, because I had to test whether I really knew what I was talking about. But as a Christian, it just kept coming back down to the same thing. Ethics is always rooted in faith. Not, and, and really I should say, if you will, your morality or doing the right thing to be specific. Because you can talk about what's right and wrong all day, but when it comes down to doing it, it's rooted in faith. When you're tempted, to take a shortcut instead of paying for something, you just slip it into your pocket. It's, it's called shoplifting. People get caught all the time shoplifting. What's surprising to me is some of them are basketball stars or people of considerable means, and yet they would do something like that for odd reasons. Whatever your reasons, I find that as a believer, it comes down to, do I believe God will take care of me? Do I believe God will supply my need? I'll do the right thing because God is faithful. Paul, in verses 6 through 12, underscores this that God is faithful by emphasizing that God is a generous God who generates generosity. He generates generosity. It's been said you can't outgive God. Well, generous faith knows that. In verses 6 through 12, these 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 verses are marbled with words of God's faithfulness and generosity. Just note, for example, in verse 8 alone, the five uses of all, all grace, all things, at all times, all that you need, all forms of good work, all forms of good work. In other words, there's a generosity that goes into not just giving of your means, but giving of your whole being in the pursuit of things that bring about good in the lives and for other people. My last name is Venema. I really never made that much of it until I moved into the area of Visalia because I didn't realize how Dutch I was until I got down here. Aren't there a few Dutch people around here? People were asking me my pedigree and stuff like that. Pedigree? What? <laughs> you mean the trailer park? <laughs> well, Venema is Dutch, and I'm mostly Dutch and Scottish. Now, I wasn't teased about being Dutch when I was growing up. Um, I didn't hear any of the jokes, you know. Uh, like someone says, uh, why do the Dutch have big noses? Because air is free. <laughs> I didn't grow up with any of that. I heard that since I got here. 
But my dad taught me hard work and frugal living with constant reminders that money doesn't grow on trees, there's no free lunch, a penny saved is a penny earned. I could go on, but we have time constraints. In other words, my dad insisted that I had to earn everything that I wanted, every nickel, every quarter, every dollar, and to each, a task was attached. I learned to be patient because nothing was ever handed to me. To get a bike, I had to earn it. And that meant I had to wait while I could earn enough money to then purchase the bike. But when I got the bike, wow, did I keep it polished. And did I protect it? And did I care for it? Oh, it was the best bike in the whole world. Could you ride my bike? Absolutely not. <laughs> and you can see that I knew its worth. And you had to also before you could use my bike. I was not, in other words, a generous person. Jesus changed all that very slowly. I turned to Christ when I realized that the most important things in life could not be earned or bought. Jesus gave me what I could never earn or buy. And I was so grateful Giving to Jesus was easy. It still is. It's really easy for me to give to Him because He's earned it. He deserves it. But others had not earned it. And they had not earned my generosity like Jesus. And that's a problem. I saw Jesus in the free grace of God through my merit system and not through his merit system. The merit system ingrained in my heart had kept the grace and generosity of Jesus' heart out. And that had to change. And if that hasn't changed for you, you need to take a long look at who Jesus Christ is, his love for you, what he has done for you. You haven't scratched the surface. And it will change your disposition, your outlook, your attitude. Grace will be the most beautiful thing to you. And grace is never free. It costs God something because he is always good. He makes it free by footing the bill in Jesus Christ. God wanted me to be a conduit, a living expression of his grace. His grace, not mine. And that has been an ongoing cycle and curve of growth for me. 
and I'm still at it. And I married a wonderful woman. I made the right decisions almost 42 years later, one of the most gracious, generous people, and she has taught me as well. Find gracious, good, generous people in your life and follow them as they follow Christ and become a generous-hearted believer. Jesus said, faithful in little, entrusted with much. That's from Luke 16, verses 10 through 12. I imagine God looking for one of his generous children and looking down and seeing me. Sour, tight-fisted Dutchman John. And the Lord saying, you know, I love that kid but he hasn't learned yet to be generous. With the little I've already given him, he holds on to it like he earned it, like he merited it. And he hasn't learned that in letting go of that, I will find in him the heart that I'm looking for, the heart that I've begun to grow through Jesus with my grace, with my generosity, so that I can add to his generosity. That's what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15. You see, generous faith does the right thing, and it knows God generates generosity and it finds its heart in the gift of Jesus Christ. Most important verse here is in verse 13. It's crazy good. It's so densely packed that it's hard to even translate. Even though the translations are are good, there's more here than meets the English reader's eye. But I just want to draw your attention to one word translated obedience, uh, submission, uh, subordination. Do you find that word in verse 13? Paul is saying that the gospel of the Messiah, he says, the gospel of the Messiah has conquered your hearts. You've acted out of obedience. You've acted out of submission because he has conquered your heart. The good news of the gospel The good news of Jesus the Messiah has won your heart, conquered it, and out of that, our Jewish brothers and sisters will see and know that your gift is generous, sincere, and genuine, and they will glorify God. I like that. It begins with saying, just as Paul said of the Macedonians, They gave themselves to God. You and I are never going to know the abundant Christian life. We're never going to know spiritual growth. We're never going to know the fruit of the Spirit or the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We're never going to become the individuals that the authentic, real individuals that God wants us to become We're not going to become more and more and more increasingly like Christ unless he conquers our heart. 
and we trust him. Yeah, we submit. We say, you're the Lord, you're God, because you're the only one who's really earned it, and I love you, and I trust you. And because of that, I'm going to do things that I never would have done. The world will never urge me to do, but you will because of who you are. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to be up here along with pastoral staff, elders, their wives. If God has spoken to your heart this morning and you would like to pray with one of us, we invite you to come. Maybe you do not know Jesus Christ as I have been describing and talking about a relationship with him. If you would like to know more and pray with us, we invite you to come. Maybe you need prayer for yourself or you're concerned and your heart is heavy out of concern for another. Whatever the need, we invite you to come. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love in Jesus Christ. We love that you reproduce yourself in us. Your heart increasingly becomes our heart, your will and your ways, our will and our ways, as we are fashioned in the form and likeness and character of Christ. We praise you that this is a great adventure and it brings a smile to our faces. There's no one like you, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.